Redemption and happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Hey, let's give a big round of applause for all of the mothers in the room. Hey, if you are a mom, I want to say a very special thank you because without you, none of us would be here. Literally, we would not have been here if it wasn't for all the mothers in the room. Hey, funny story to start off the message today. If you're new, one of our core values is expository preaching, which is a fancy college word that means we preach the Bible verse by verse. So right now we're in the gospel of Mark. If you have yours, go ahead, turn the to Mark chapter 14, 14 chapters. We have been in the gospel of Mark. We started this series in March of 2018. So long time, which means we've had several different Mother's Days during uh, this series. And it's always exciting to see what Bible verse we're going to preach on Mother's Day. So uh, last year, we actually preached a, a sermon called Joy in Suffering. If that ain't a Mother's Day sermon, I don't know what is. Uh, but the year before that was my personal favorite. It was called Jesus Casts Out the Demons. It was a Mother's Day sermon about the man who was possessed with 5,000 demons. It's a perfect sermon for Mother's Day because that's why moms bring their kids to church. Ain't it true? Ain't it true? Uh, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, But today is not going to be like that. Uh, Today's actually, in God's providence, a really really awesome Mother's Day message because the sermon for today, the, the title for today's sermon is Jesus and the woman with the alabaster jar. So nice Mother's Day. Don't tell, uh, say I never did anything nice for you, okay? If you have your Bibles, turn with you to Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. And this is going to be a beautiful sermon over a woman who makes an incredible act of worship. This is probably one of the most beautiful, the most powerful, one of the most significant and heart-moving scriptures about the importance of worship. Now, before we dive in, let me just go ahead and say, even though this sermon is over worship, you're not going to see her sing a song, okay? She's not going to sing Oceans or maybe your favorite worship song that they play on Air One. You're not going to see any kind of music in this because here's what we notice is that in the Bible, worship is not just about the songs that we sing. Typically, when we hear the word worship, we think about music. We think about the band as they come up and play. We typically think about uh, an album that released or maybe a genre of music, but that's not what the Bible presents worship as. Worship has a little bit to do with music, but it is not limited to music. Worship, if you're taking notes, write this down, is not about the songs that we sing But rather, worship is about the sacrifice that we bring. Worship is a way of life. Worship is a sacrifice that we make with our lives as every single one of us live our lives for the glory and for the purpose of Jesus. That's what worship is. So you're not going to see her play the guitar. You're not going to see her wearing skinny jeans with a frosted tips on her hair, singing that high note. You're not going to see a dotted eighth with the refrain and how the bridge builds up just nice to where when the chorus comes in, you get the warm, fuzzy feelings inside. You know that part of your favorite song? You're not going to see that in this text either. But what you are going to see is a passionate and a beautiful display of worship from the woman with the alabaster jar. Because worship is not about the songs that 
we sing, worship is about the sacrifice that we bring. But the Bible shows this in several other areas. One area in particular is Pastor Paul teaching his church in the book of Romans about what real, genuine, true worship is. And this is what he says. He says to present your songs. That's not what he says. He doesn't say present your songs. He doesn't say present your voice. He doesn't say present your Spotify playlist. He doesn't say present your YouTube playlist. No, here's what he says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice because worship is a sacrifice. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice for this is your spiritual act of, what's the word? Worship, because worship is not about the songs that we sing. Rather, worship is the way that we live. Worship is about the sacrifice that we bring. And today, we're going to see that sacrifice play out in the life of the woman with the alabaster jar. If you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. We'll read it all up front, and then I'm going to give you four ways that we are to worship. Here's what it says in 14.1. And it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They're talking about Jesus. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why does this woman pour this over her head? His head, this ointment was wasted like that. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me for you will always have the poor with you and whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she, will, what she has done will be told in memory of her. If you are new, this is the 57th sermon in our study in the Gospel of Mark. So many of you are new. Let me go ahead and bring you up to speed. Mark chapter 1, we're introduced to Jesus as he begins his life in ministry. He is preaching, teaching, healing, casting out demons, and revealing the kingdom of God. In fact, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Mark was from a sermon where he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is is at hand. After that, he goes and he's baptized. He comes out of the baptism water and all, he goes and reveals the kingdom of God through his signs, wonders, miracles, and his ministry. The first 11 chapters of the book of Mark is all about the life of Jesus. It takes place in a three and a half year period. The last six chapters of the book of Mark is all about his death. It takes place within a period of one week. So three years, one week. Ministry, and then it goes into what is called the passion ministry, or the final week, last week, the last days of Jesus. And it starts in Mark chapter 11 with what is known as the triumphant entry. Jesus comes in on a donkey. People are waving their palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Big crowd follows after Jesus. This upsets the religious leaders. So the next day, Jesus goes goes into the temple, starts flipping over some tables. He makes a whip and whoosh, he drives out the money changers, the tax collectors and all those. 
And then the following day, he gets in what is known as the five temple controversies. These are five fights that Jesus gets in with the religious leaders. Now, when I say fight, it's not like they're like boxing or doing jujitsu or he's, you know, doing a flying elbow drop off the top turnbuckle, not actual fights, but he's getting into dialogue, debates, and arguments with religious leaders over their religious traditions, customs, and their norms. And after a long day of fighting with the religious leaders, basically what comes down to be a 10-hour sermon. Y'all thought my sermons are long. Jesus preaches a 10-hour sermon, goes, hangs out with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he prophesies the end of the world. Busy day for Jesus. And what does Jesus do right after that here in Mark 14? He hangs out with his friends. He is found reclining at a table in a house in Bethany. And here's what I love so much about Jesus is that Jesus was busy, but he was never too busy to spend time with the people that he loves. Even in the middle of what could be the craziest week, not only in his life or his ministry, but in all of human history, the final week of life of Jesus, the most important, preeminent, the most prominent person in the history of the world. More songs have been sung to him, books written about him, more paintings painted of him than any other person. We divide all human history by his life and his death. B.C., before Christ, A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. In the busiest week, the last week of Jesus' life, he hangs out with his friends. And what I love so much about Jesus is he is never too busy to spend time with the people that he loves. Just think about it. Do you think Jesus was busy? I mean, he is God, very God, entered into history, become a man. Do you think Jesus was busy in his life? I mean, what we see here is there's great crowds that follow him. There's people outside the room trying to kill him. And he's still making time to spend time with his friends. If you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing today? Do you know what Jesus would say? Um, holding the universe together by my word and my will. That's my day. Oh, it sounds pretty busy, Jesus. It sounds like you're pretty busy. What do you got going on later this week? I don't know. Atoning for the sins of all of mankind. Oh, wow. Whoop-de-doo, Jesus. You sound like you're pretty busy. What are, you, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm interceding on behalf of the saints and distributing spiritual gifts to the church. All day? All day. Wow, Jesus. Sounds like you're pretty busy right now. Yeah, but I'm not too busy to spend time with you. Is there anything you need? Because Jesus, even in the middle of the busiest week of his life, he still is reclining at a table, hanging out with his friends because Jesus is never too busy to spend time with the people that he loves. That's Jesus, okay? Now here comes the conviction. If Jesus is never too busy to spend time with us, then we should never be too busy to spend time with him. See, as a pastor, what I hear all the time is they say, Pastor, I would love to, but I'm just too busy. In the 21st century, we basically, here in America, wear the word busy as if it's a badge of honor, right? Call a friend on the phone. Hey, can you, no, I'm just sorry, I can't, too busy. Oh, I would love to, but I can't. Oh, I'm just too busy. I would love to come in. I would love to hang out. I would love to do these things, but, uh, you know, ooh, I'm just too busy. And that even plays out in our own spiritual disciplines and walk with Jesus as well. Because we would love to go to church, but what happens? So oftentimes we're just 
too busy. We say, I just can't make it. It's my only day off. And, you know, I got to mow the yard. I got to do the honeydew list. I got to, you know, uh, wash my hair. I got to do whatever it is other than go to church because I'm just, just too busy. So I would love to go to small group. I would love to be in a serve team. I really would. Pastor, could you pencil me in the fourth week after October? Just pencil me in, though, because something might come up. I'm just really, really busy. I would love to spend more time in prayer, but I'm just too busy. I would love to read my Bible, but I'm just too busy. And we find ourselves living in a pattern of life that is just too busy. Can I, can I tell you something? I love you. I really do care for you. But this is something that's on my heart, and I believe it's very important. If you're too busy to spend time with Jesus, you're just too busy. If you're too busy to worship, then you're just too busy. This is why worship is not about the songs that we sing. Because you could drive in your car and listen to some songs, and you think you're really worshiping. You could have your Spotify playlist going on while you're doing the laundry, and you could actually think you're actually worshiping when you're not, because you're just trying to squeeze Jesus into your schedule rather than opening up your schedule to allow Jesus to minister to you. If you're too busy to worship, the truth is you're just too busy. Worship is not about the songs that we sing. Rather, it is the sacrifices that we make in this life. And if you're too busy to spend time with Jesus, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. You're going to have to reorder, reorganize, reprioritize your life. Because here's what worship is. Worship is really worth. Worship is what you ascribe worth to. Worship is what is most important, preeminent, prominent in your life. What is that area of your life that is of first importance? What are you giving your best time to? What are you giving your best energy and effort towards? What are you giving the most money towards? If it's anything other than God, then that's the position of worship for your life because you are ascribing worth to something. Now, the truth is we're all worshipers. We worship all the time. We were created to worship. We were made to worship. We, in our very essence, are worshipers. The question is not, do you worship? The question is, who or what do you worship? Because you will either worship someone or something, or you will worship the someone who created everything. But nevertheless, every single one of us is a worshiper. Some people worship their careers. Some people worship their job, worship their vocation. That's where they get their identity from. This is who I am. This is what I do. Some people worship their children. Some people worship their family. Maybe your husband or wife, you worship them. Boyfriend or girlfriend, you worship them. You worship the idea of being in a relationship or the idea of being single. Some people worship their gender, worship their sexuality, worship their president or politician. Some people worship their cat, which really is just demon worship. But either way... Everyone is a worshiper. Drugs, sex, alcohol, those are worship problems. I meet people and they they say things like, oh, I just can't stop drinking. I have a drinking problem. No, you don't. You have a worship problem that is manifesting itself in alcoholism. But it is a worship problem. You know why? Because people make sacrifices of their time, their treasure, their family, and their health, sacrifice based upon what they worship. And you're sacrificing your health by using drugs. It's a worship problem because you are sacrificing for what you love. It's a, it's a worship area of your life. And if you worship your job, you're going to make sacrifices of your family. If you worship your identity, you're going to make sacrifices of other people's. This is how life works. These are all just worship problems. And the truth is, it's not that you're too busy to worship, 
but rather you are so busy worshiping other things that you don't actually have time to worship God. Worship is not the songs that you sing. Worship is the sacrifice that you bring and the way that you live your life. And we're going to see this play out in the woman with the alabaster jar. It is a true picture and portrait of what worship is to look like. I'm going to give you four ways in which you are to worship today. The first way is this. Worship should be, fill in the blank, worship should be priceless. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman with an alabaster flask of pure nard, very costly, she broke the flask and poured it over his Head. This is a very elaborate display of her affection for Jesus. The story is that she takes an alabaster jar. Now, to us, this might not mean a whole lot, but to her, it meant everything. This alabaster jar was probably the most prized possession that she owned. A little bit later, we're going to read that it was worth 300 denarii. That's about $60,000. Okay, just a little Bible trivia. Do y'all remember in Mark when Jesus fed the 5,000 plus men, women, and children, upwards of 25,000 people? The disciples said that you could feed these people with 200 denarii, 25,000 people, 200 denarii. And yet this small alabaster jar is worth 300 denarii, which is the, today's equivalent of about $60,000. Now this woman, she wasn't a woman of means. Because in those days, women weren't allowed to own property. They weren't allowed to vote or have any rights. And they didn't have access to a bank account. And she's at Simon the leper's house, which most likely means that her friends and family would have been outcasts by society, not very wealthy, not people of means. And yet she has a jar of ointment that is costly. Most likely it was a family heirloom passed down to her through generations. Maybe somebody that she loved passed away. Maybe like some of you, her mother passed away. And this is what she has to remember her. And when Jesus walks in the room, what do we see? She takes that that is most important to her and she breaks it open. And then she begins to pour it over the head of Jesus. And she begins to bless and to anoint the head of Jesus with this alabaster. But this is not how you normally would do it. This would be a pure nard. It would have been a concentrated substance. So typically what happened is you would take just a small little piece and then you would mix it with another solution or you would dilute it in some way and then you would rub it on and you would use it as perfume. But that's not what she does. She doesn't mix this. She doesn't dilute this. Instead, she breaks open the flask and the entire ointment goes from the top of his head and it goes all the way down his body as she breaks the flask before Jesus. And so here's my question for us today. How much is Jesus worth to you? See, Jesus, to her, priceless. The most important thing that she owned paled into comparison to having Jesus in her life. How much is Jesus worth to you? For this woman, what was most valuable to her was now worthless because her worship of Jesus was priceless. You have to ask yourself, at what point do you make a sacrifice for Jesus? How much is Jesus worth to you? The truth is, if you can put a price tag on Jesus, then he ain't priceless to you. 
if you can ascribe a number or an amount to Jesus, then you cannot afford the cost of worship. I remember early in our church, I was talking to a guy and, and he had a, a wife and he had a few kids and he was pretty involved, pretty plugged into the church. And then he came up to me one day and he said, Pastor, I'm not going to be able to come to church anymore. I said, oh, okay, well, why is that? And he said, well, I was just offered a job making, uh, uh, working nights and weekends and I'm just not going to be able to come to church. So, well, how much, how much are they paying you? He said, I'm going to get a $2 an hour raise. I said, I said, let me ask you a question. How much is Jesus worth to you? And he said, well, what do you mean? It's like, if I could pay you to never go to church again, how much would that cost? He said, oh, you could never do that. He said, if I could pay you to never pray again or read your Bible, how much would that cost? He said, I would never do it. I was like, let's just, let's just figure it out. I'm pressing him a little harder. I said, would you do it for a million dollars? He said, I would never do it for a million dollars. Would you do it for two million? Never for two million. Ten million. No, never for ten million. I said, what about for your family? Would you, would you give up spending evenings with your wife? Would you miss playing games and watching movies and family night with your kids? How much would that cost you? A million, two million, 10 million? He said, I would never do it, not even for $10 million. I said, if you wouldn't do it for 10 million, then why are you gonna do that for $2 an hour? Because you have to figure out how much is your family worth to you? How much is your children worth to you? How much is your faith and your relationship with Jesus worth to you? If you could put a price tag on it, it's because Jesus is not priceless to you. Your worship is not priceless when worship is supposed to be priceless. See, as for me, I've just made this decision. Me and Ashley, we agreed a long time ago that I never want to offer Jesus something that doesn't cost me everything. When I worship Jesus, I want it to be real. I want it to be true. I want to be like this woman with the alabaster jar. I don't want to measure out my worship. I don't want to, I don't want to calculate how much I give versus how much I keep. When I worship Jesus, I never want to give him something that doesn't cost me everything. I don't want to have to lie when I worship. I don't want to have to sing songs with my mouth that my heart doesn't mean. When I say, Jesus, I give you everything, I want to mean it. I don't want to mean I give you some of me. I give you most of me. I give you almost of me. I give you everything but this one little thing over here. No, when I worship Jesus, I don't want to give him something that doesn't cost me everything. I want to be like the woman with the alabaster jar. I want to break the flask. I want to pour out my worship on him. I want to anoint him with my words, with my heart, with my life. I don't want to sing, I surrender some. I want to sing, I surrender all. I don't want to sing, I surrender most. I want to say, I surrender all. I want to give you everything that I got, and I never want to give you something that doesn't cost me everything. She doesn't hold back. Instead, she breaks the flask, because Jesus is priceless to her. The second thing we see is this. Worship should be passionate. In John's gospel, it actually gives us a little bit more detail. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the fastest, the shortest, and the simplest, which is why we're calling this series The Simple Gospel. But John gives us detail that Mark left out. And it not only tells us the woman's name, but it also tells us something very interesting. In John 12, 3, it says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance 
of the perfume. Now, in this day, what she is doing right here would be considered scandalous because women don't let their hair down because that would be a sign of intimacy. That would be a sign of vulnerability. And that would not be accepted uh, form of interaction between a woman and a man in those days. In fact, women would not have even been allowed into that room as the men are reclining at the table. She would not even be allowed unless she was the servant, but she breaks tradition. She breaks protocol and she does something that is completely different. Whenever she hears that Jesus is in the room, she busts open that room. She doesn't care who's in there and she runs and she falls at the feet of Jesus and she anoints his feet and wipes his feet with her hair and her tears. And some of you are thinking right now, you're like, wait, I thought in Mark it said that she anointed his head and now John is saying that she anointed his feet. Contradiction in the Bible, Byron. Actually, it's not a contradiction. It was one pound of pure ointment. That was enough to anoint both the head and the feet at the same time. And she breaks the ointment and then she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair as she kneels down in the presence of Jesus, most likely thinking about how Jesus has preached the kingdom of God, how Jesus has come in signs and miracles, how Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and substitute himself in her place and die for her sins. She is so consumed, so overwhelmed, so in love with Jesus that in this moment, she can't even stand before him and she falls down to her knees and she worships him. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you were this passionate about Jesus? When was the last time that you were so passionate about Jesus that you couldn't even stand up? You just had to get down on your knees and you prayed to him and you worshiped him and you blessed him and you sang to him and you poured out your heart to him. When was the last time that you were so moved with love for God that you couldn't even stand up? When was the last time you thought about what Jesus has done for you, who Jesus is? When was the last time you thought that God would become a man and he would enter into human history and he would live the life that you never could live? He would see you in your sin and your shame and your guilt and your condemnation. He would see you for who you truly are, not the you you pretend to be, not the you you post on social media, not the you when you go to work, not the you that you pretend to be, but he would see the real you, the true you. He would see the you behind the mask that nobody else sees, and he would say, I still want that. How many of you think about what Jesus has done, that he comes and he lives the life like all of us, a life of pain, a life of suffering, a life of hardship, a life of difficulty, and he would trade his perfect life for our painful, sinful life. And that through the cross, he would give us the great exchange that our sins and debt would be canceled. He paid the ransom for our sins and he gives you hope. He gives you grace. He gives you mercy. He gives you redemption. He gives you salvation. He gives you himself. When was the last time you were so consumed with the love of God, so moved by the love of God, so overwhelmed by God's goodness and kindness and grace to you when you just think about it. You can't stand it. You just fall and you worship him. When was the last time you got alone with God and you were that passionate about your prayers? 
This is what Mary does. This is what worship looks like. Now, immediately, some of you are thinking, but Byron, that's just not who I am. That's just not my personality. That's just not my preference. You know, I, I took an Enneagram test, and I'm a nine, and we don't just do that. I, I, I don't, maybe fours might do that. They're really passionate. But I'm a nine. I'm a five, just very calculated, very, nope, that's just not who I am. I, I took a Myers-Briggs. I'm, I'm an introvert. You're an extrovert. I'm more introspective. You're more out there, whatever you're doing. That's you. That's, that's not me. That's not me. But let me just tell you something. When you're passionate, passion overtakes your personality. People don't have a problem displaying their affection for things that they love. People don't have a problem being passionate about things that they love. I mean, just give you an illustration, right? So I've seen grown men during church just stand there like this. Nope. Nope. Oh, worshiping. I'm not lifting my hands. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. Meanwhile, they look at their wife, and their wife's like, oh. It's like, that ain't me. That ain't me. I ain't doing it. The worship band keeps trying to get me to raise my hands, but I ain't raising my hands. They keep saying sing. I ain't singing. Nope, not singing. Pastor's preaching. Arms are folded. Not listening. Nope, not listening. And you think, okay, well, let's take it out of church. Let's take that same man out of the church, and let's put him... 50-yard line of a Dallas Cowboy game. I mean, he's got half his face painted. He's standing, cheering. Like, he knows, oh, yeah. He knows everybody's, all the players by name can't name the 12 disciples, but you can name the offensive line. And they're just cheering, and you got popcorn in one hand, nachos in another, and you pay $27 for a beer. And you're excited. Why? Because people don't have a problem being passionate about things they love. You could take an emo indie rocker in the back of the church. They're just sitting there hiding in the shadows. But if you put them, if you put them in the front of the stage for their favorite band, know every single lyric to every single song because people don't have a problem being passionate about things that they love. This is the reason why every time a new shoe comes out, people are going and buying the shoe. Air Force One posted it on their social media. Every time an iPhone 17.2 comes out, lines around the block, a new restaurant opens up, you're calling ahead trying to get a reservation. Why? Because people don't have a problem being passionate about the things that they love. You just really got to ask yourself, what do you value in life? What do you give your worth to? Because people don't have a problem being passionate about the things that they love. Listen, God's presence is what we should be passionate about. God's presence should trump our personality. God's presence should trump our situation. God's presence should trump our circumstances. God's presence should trump our personalities and preferences. We should be passionate about God's presence. Let me give you an illustration. So I'm a dad. I have two absolutely beautiful little girls, Esther Sun and Ruth Moon. Their middle names are Sun and Moon, and that's about how different they are. It's a prophetic because they are literally night and day. Their personalities completely different from one another. In fact, I have a, a picture right here. This is my daughter, Esther Sun. Look at her. Isn't she so cute? She, this is taken first thing in the morning. She is just a big ball of sunshine. And this is a picture of my daughter, Ruth Moon. Y'all be praying for us. <laughs> Completely different. 
But yet my favorite thing in the world to do is to come home from work, open the door, and I hear Esther go, Daddy's home! And she runs through the house. Daddy, 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 daddy. She throws her arms open and she goes, daddy's home. And she jumps in my arms. And then I hear little Ruth go, da, 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 da. And here she comes running. Just, she can barely walk, but she's running. She's da, 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 da. And then she jumps in my arms. And I pick up both of my little girls and I hold them really tight. And I say, mama gets the first kiss. And I go over to give mama a kiss. And then we crash on the couch and the girls jump on top of me. And we wrestle and we play first thing when I come home. And here's what I find so amazing is that my daughter's completely different personalities. But when I, as their dad, walk in the room, their passion overrides it and they love being in my presence. As a father, and for the rest of you who are dads, I want you to understand something that as parents, we are the closest thing Mothers included, we are the closest thing that our children will know who God is. And how your children react to you with their love and their attention and their desires as they're dependent upon you is a way that we should be dependent upon him. And when God walks in the room, everybody falls to their knees because of the presence of God. This is what we see happen in this woman. She is overwhelmed by the love and the presence of Jesus. That she just throws her hands up. She falls down to her knees and she worships him. God's presence is our greatest passion and it is greater than our personalities. Whenever he walks into the room, we are so moved by love and compassion for him that we fall to our knees and we wipe his feet with our worship. Worship should be passionate. Number three, our worship is supposed to be pure. Here's what it says. She broke the flask and she poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you wherever you want, and you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. One of the things that non-believers, unchristians, and social justice warriors would, would love to say is that the church just doesn't do enough. The church doesn't play its part. The church needs to do more. The church is so hateful and bigoted and mean. The church, the church, the church, the church. And they'll look at society, and they'll look what's happening, and they'll say, oh, it's all the church's fault. The church doesn't do anything. The church is not generous, helping, or blessing to those who are in need. Meanwhile, Christians give two times the national average to charities. Every hospital or most universities and hospitals were actually founded by churches and Christian denominations. Okay, the universities that you went to to learn all those things where you say, you know, churches are wrong. Well, you got that education because a Christian somewhere most likely started that university as well. And so, the people who want to criticize the church. Meanwhile, did you know that um, the, those who are on the left, the least likely person to be generous in America is a liberal in their early 20s, which also happens to be the most critical person in America as well. Just saying, do the math, okay? And they would, they would criticize the church 
for not doing anything to help those who are in need. And they love to use this Bible verse right here in James, where it says true religion is to take care of the orphans and the widows, and you're not taking care of the orphans and the widows. But they forget this verse that's also in James, which says to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's, they didn't read the whole verse. They just picked and choose the part they liked, but they didn't read the whole thing. To keep oneself unstained from the world. See, the world thinks that the meaning of life is to do good. We want to do good. We want to help people. We want to bless and pray, and we want to be there for people. Yes, that's why we give and serve and love. But the church is not a do-good organization. The church exists to worship God. And we worship God by doing good, but we don't do good to get from God. And so what we need to understand, first and foremost, the meaning and the reason that we gather as a church is to worship and glorify God. Even during our building campaign, some people have said, why do you need to raise $500,001 to buy a new building, to renovate that new building? Do you know how many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches you could make with $500,000? Do you know how many homeless people you could feed? Do you know? But it's funny that they're telling me what I should do with my money, and they don't have any clue what they're doing with theirs. Why do we need to build a bigger building? Why do we need to buy a bigger building? Did you see how many people are in the room right now? We don't even have enough room with two services to fit these people in. And so if we want to reach more people, we need to have a bigger building. We have so many kids in the back, they're just pouring out the sides right now. We need a bigger building so we can continue to reach more children, more families, help bless, serve more people. Because the church doesn't just exist to do good. The church exists to worship God. And this is what's happening in the story right here. They're criticizing this woman for worshiping. They're ridiculing her for worshiping. They say, do you not know how much money you just wasted? Because to the world, worship is a waste. When the world sees your worship, they think, what a waste. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your finances. You're wasting your resources. You're wasting your life. When the world sees our worship, they don't understand it, and they think that it's actually a waste. But what does Jesus do? Jesus stands up for this woman, and he says, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know her heart. You don't know what she has done for me. She has done a beautiful thing because it's about worshiping him with purity. The way that the world versus the way the church works, completely different. There is a purity about our lives, or at least there should be. There is a purity about how we live, or at least there should be. There should be a purity when it comes to our worship that, frankly, the world just doesn't understand. You mean to tell me that you go to church every single Sunday? Actually, I go to two services on Sunday because I serve one, sit one. What a waste. So you, you, you go to small groups in the middle of the week, and then you go to Wednesday night, prayer night, every first Wednesday? Yeah, what a waste. You mean you organize your home in a way to where you can eat family dinner with your children? Yeah, I do that. Oh, that's just a waste. You mean to tell me that you give 10% of your finances and resources to the church? No, actually, I signed a Be Bold pledge, so I go above and beyond when it comes to my giving. And you don't understand that because you think my worship is actually a waste. You don't get it. You don't understand. And you know what? They shouldn't understand. We shouldn't expect non-believers to think like believers. They don't understand it because they don't know what's of value to us. They don't know what's most important to us. They don't know what we give our worth to. They can't understand it. And that's just the way that it's supposed to be. 
And some of you, you're going to be criticized, ostracized. You're going to be made fun of. People aren't going to understand it because they don't know what you value. I remember whenever I first became a Christian, me and Ashley, we, we were basically living together. We were sexually active. And I remember when we got saved, we were reading the Bible, and there's this word in there. It's an F word called fornication. We had never heard that before. We're like, that's an F word we're unfamiliar with. And, and we figured out what that word meant, and it did not mean what we wanted it to mean. But we were convicted by the Holy Spirit, and along with our small group and accountability, we decided that we were going to refrain from sex until we got married. It's about two years where we abstained from sex before marriage. And some guys that I worked with, they, 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 they caught wind of this, and they were like, wait, you mean to tell me that you ain't having sex with her? And I was like, actually, no, I'm not. They said, you got to be crazy. How, 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 do you, how do you marry a girl if you don't even sleep with her? You gotta, that's, that's insane. That's the dumbest thing. Can't you just ask God to forgive you after you do it? I mean, isn't God forgiving? So, I mean, just have sex with her and then ask God to forgive you. Doesn't that the way that works? I said, listen, I'm a Christian, and I believe in the Bible, and I believe that God's word is the best for my life. I've tried doing it my way, and it didn't work. So I'm going to try doing it God's way, and we'll see what works. And I believe personally that the best way to love Ashley is by me loving God. And the best way for me to honor Ashley is by me honoring God. And if I honor God, I'll honor her, and then God will honor our marriage. Well, here we are 15 years later, still married, seemed to work out pretty good for me, okay? But to them, that just didn't make sense. I remember when I was first called into ministry, and I told Ashley's parents, I said, we, we want to become church, church planters, and we want to become pastors. They thought, well, you're not going to make any money doing that. That seems, I don't know, I just, you're going to go into ministry? Aren't there other things that you could do? I mean, you have a college degree. How are you going to be able to provide for the family? I mean, you know, I've read pastors don't seem to make a lot of money. Are you sure that's what you want to do? And she, she didn't tell me it was a waste, but in one sense, she thought I could do something else and be able to do better. Because she didn't understand the values had changed. My values in life had changed. What was important to me was difference. And they didn't understand that. And I, I get it. Many of you, you probably feel the same tension in your life. How many of you are like, yeah, I, I get that. that. That what I used to value is no longer what I value, but I'm still surrounded by the people of my previous life. And I want to love God. I really, really, Pastor, I really, really do want to be like this alabaster jar. I don't want to measure out my worship. I want to break the flask, and I want to pour it out on Jesus. I want to give him everything. But at the same time, I'm scared. At the same time, I'm nervous. What are people going to say? What are people going to think? How are people going to treat me? What are they going to say at work? What are, what are my kids going to say? I mean, they're teenagers, and I've lived my whole life apart from Jesus, and now I have to go in and witness to them. I'm scared. I'm nervous. You know, I really, really want to love God, but I kind of want to be liked by others. And you're caught in this tension. I want to encourage you with something. Is that you will never be able to please God if you're trying to live your life impressing people. If you're worried about what other people are going to say, you need to worry more about what God says. If you're worried about what other people are going to do, you need to worry more about what God is going to do. If you're worried about what other people are going to think, you need to worry more about what God thinks because in this text, who gets blessed? It ain't the crowd. It's the woman who gave everything. 
Who does Jesus stand up for? Who does Jesus bless? Who does Jesus speak for? Who does Jesus come to the side of? Who is Jesus there for? It is the woman who gave his, her worship to him. That's who Jesus blesses. If you're worried about what other people are going to think, you're not going to be able to truly please God with your life. And listen, when you die, they're not going to be there on judgment day giving an account for you. You're not going to have to stand before them and give an account for your life. They're not going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant to you. They didn't go to the cross. They didn't die for your sins. So at the end of the day, what does it matter even what they think? Because the only thing that matters is what he thinks. And when you live a life of abandon, when you live a life of worship, when you live a life this devoted, this sold out, the father is smiling down on you and he says, I am pleased. If you're trying to impress people, you're not going to be able to please God. But if you want to please God, then you worship him with purity in your life. Which leads to the final point is this, is that worship is powerful. Here's how we close out the text. It says this, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospels were claimed in the whole world, what she has done will be done in memory of her. I just keep thinking about this one line all week long. She did what she could. And as I've been thinking about that line this week, I just think about that. I say, Byron, have you done what you could? She didn't have much. She wasn't a woman of means. She wasn't a, a woman of wealth. But she took what she had and all that she had, and she used it in that moment. And Jesus says she did what she could. I have to ask myself, this week, did I do what I could? If worship's not about the songs that I sing, but the life that I live, when it came to loving my wife this week, did I love her the way that I could or did I hold something back? When it comes to my children, was I the dad that they deserved or did I hold something back from them? Did I do what I could? Did I glorify God in my home this week? Did I glorify God with my family this week? Did I glorify God with my finances? If this is what worship is, I don't want to hold anything back. I want to love my wife the way that Jesus loves his church. I want to love my kids the way the Father loves me. I don't want to hold anything back. I want to do what I can. She did what she could. When it comes to pastoring this church, I'm not a perfect pastor, but I have to ask myself, am I doing what I can? Am I living my life with worship that is priceless? Am I living my life with worship that is pure? Am I living a life of worship that has power behind it? Because when you think about worship like this, here's what it means. It affects everything in your life because, because worship is about your life. It has the power to change the way you think. Your worship has the power to change the way you act and behave. Your worship has the power to change the way that you love your kids. Your worship has the power to change the way that you love your spouse. Your worship has the power to change the way that you think about finances or think about the lost or think about the church. Your worship has the power to change your perspective. 
Who or what do you worship in your life? Not only was this worship powerful for her, but here's the other thing. It says that she anointed his body for burial. You know what that means? It was also prophetic. See, in a few days, Jesus is going to be arrested. And with the haste of the trial and the crucifixion, they don't have time to prepare his body for burial. And I have to wonder, the disciples, they didn't, under, they didn't understand. How do they not understand? Three times Jesus already told them in the Gospel of Mark that he was going to be betrayed, handed over to the chief priests and scribes, crucified, and three days later he would rise. And the disciples, they're sitting here rebuking this woman while she was prophetically declaring the things that Jesus said he would do. How is it possible that the disciples don't see him, but this woman sees him? It's because she has a greater love for him than others. There's a line from A.W. Tozer. He, he writes it in his pursuit of God. He says, those who have accomplished the most for God in this life are the people who love them the most with their lives. And then he goes on to say, you can have as much of God as you want. No more or no less. You can have as much of God as you want. And this woman, she sees Jesus and she pours herself out. And in his love and grace, he fills her back up. The more you pour out, the more he fills you back up. The more of your life you pour out, the more of his love he will fill you back up with. Don't measure out your worship. Break the flask. And anoint the head and the feet of Jesus. And I have to wonder if after this week, after she anoints him, if that perfume didn't linger on his skin and his hair throughout the remainder of the passion narrative. So after Jesus gets up and he goes to the garden of Gethsemane as he's laying, as he's sitting there praying in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he's praying and he says, Father, if this cup might pass, takes a deep breath, he smells the fragrance of her worship and he says, not my will, but yours be done. If when Judas comes and betrays him with the kiss, as Judas kisses the cheek of Jesus, does he taste the ointments of her worship and realize the bitterness of his betrayal because of her worship. It lingered with Jesus. As the guards were plucking the beard from his face and they laid the crown of thorns on his head and the great crowd was surrounding him, mocking him, and he's bleeding from the beating that he received. Did they get, did they get the ointment on their fingers? As he's being nailed to the cross, they take his body and they lift it up on the cross. And for hours he is hanging there on the cross and he is crying out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he smells the worship. As he breathes out his last breath, did her worship give him the strength to not pull himself off that cross? 
but to say it is finished because this woman's worship was worth my life. See, this woman was not the only person who made a sacrifice. She made her sacrifice because she knew that Jesus was going to make the greatest sacrifice. When you think about what Jesus has done, it's not hard to make a sacrifice, is it? When you think about what Jesus did for you, is it really that hard to live for him? When you think about the sacrifice and the price that Jesus paid for us, is loving him really that big of a price to pay? See, we make a sacrifice, but really what we do is we're just giving back to God what he's already given to us through his greatest sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. This is why Jesus says in this text that wherever the gospel is preached, she will be remembered. And here we are 2,000 years later. What are we doing? We're inspired by the worship of a woman who didn't hold anything back. She broke the flask. She poured out her life. And here we are because of that. We're being filled with inspiration and hope and the message of the goodness of God on this day. God is still filling her flask back up 2,000 years later. It wasn't a sacrifice when you considered what Jesus did for us. And so if you're taking notes, here's the last line. Redemption, we live for Jesus because Jesus died for us. Worship is not about the music. Worship is about your life. It's not about what you do on Sunday. It's about what you do every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is worship. It's all of our lives lived glorifying him and giving him worth for everything that he has done for us. That's what living a life of genuine worship looks like. It's about the sacrifice that we bring. Present your life as a living sacrifice for this is what pleases God and this is your worship.